Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer industry, as well as beer lovers from other realms of popular culture. As always, I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, our head brewer, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Hi, John. Our next guest is the head of sales for Humble Sea Brewing in Santa Cruz, California. In six short years, Humble Sea has grown from a one-barrel system on a relative's farm to one of the country's most acclaimed craft beer breweries. The brainchild of three childhood friends, Humble Sea has tapped into a sense of craft, community, and environmental stewardship. They also make damn good beer and appear to have a lot of fun doing it. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Nick Sanchez. Thank you for actually uh, joining us here in the tap room of JWB. Thank you for having me. Glad to, uh, glad to have you here, brother, and uh, in town for the uh, thick event that we got going on Sunday. Oh, yeah. So uh, you also just took a red eye from the West Coast. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm supposing you're ready to do a radio show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I feel, I feel ready. Definitely. Yeah. And, I mean, you're also here for a collab. So, I mean, we're also going to talk, you know, rebrewing uh, modern craft beverage and knocking out a new uh, imperial stout for barrels. So uh, definitely glad. I mean, you guys are definitely some of our fam. We love having you guys in town. And I mean, uh, does that mean you're going to also come back in March for Wakefest? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I did 2022, I'm, I'm going to a lot of places. Nice. If you guys nice. are going anywhere also, just let yes, me know. Yes. I'll just meet you there. Yes, absolutely. So the beer part of Humble Sea started in Nick Pavlina's grandmother's-in-law's farm in Ben, ben Lomond? Yeah, Ben Lomond, yeah. Yeah, with uh, one barrel setup. What were those first beers that that he was brewing was well, like oh they're just amazing they're, really? just, they're just the best beers ever uh <laughs> now he's doing like you know like pliny uh you know like clones, clones and yeah. stuff like that uh i remember one time I, I i uh i flew back home and he uh he had like a christmas ale that he wanted me to try to see if i could like sneak into las vegas where i was working uh i was like yeah dude i think that's super illegal but uh, <laughs> why not why yeah. not um, so yeah, he was just doing those like classic like pale ales, a lot of like Simcoe, West, Citra. The West Coast yeah. yeah, I mean he went to school in Chico, so oh. Sierra Nevada is oh, of course. Yeah, Sierra yeah. Nevada is what he was doing right down the road. Of course, I mean, uh, how did you guys meet? How did did you you know Nick Taylor, Wet, you know Frank? How did you guys all meet and come together as a? So uh, Taylor and Frank grew up the same year. Uh, they grew up like since kindergarten. Oh my god! I think like first grade. Yeah. Uh, Nick Pavlina's younger brother Scotty grew up with them in the same year. Ah. So Nick was just one year older. He was just the older brother, and then uh, all three of them grew up together and then moved away. Uh, so they went to college. Frank went to uh, Point Loma in San Diego. Uh, Pavlina went to Chico, uh, and Taylor uh, went to Cabrillo Junior College, and then he went to Missouri, Southeast Missouri, not not the University of Missouri, Southeast Missouri in play football cape Girardo, i think which one's a football player he, yeah he played he played right, football. Taylor. so yeah. i met i met taylor at carrillo i met taylor and then nick's younger brother scotty right. uh in high school because i went to a different high school then but we all met playing sports against each uh, other oh really and then we all moved away um i stayed in good contact with taylor after after school and then um i went and visited him in missouri nice i wouldn't recommend visiting him <laughs> i've actually i think i played football in missouri i forgot w- what team we played against but it was miserable <laughs> it, was, it was a it was miserable it was an interesting town yeah <laughs> we, we, had, we had a good time it was a good time to catch up with him but uh slowly one by one they all moved back uh pavlina had a the goal of uh opening a brewery and then uh he, he had an original partner and then uh that fell through through unfortunately like an accident oh wow and that kind of okay. like put a pause on the idea and then he reached out to taylor and frank if they were interested in starting and then uh taylor and uh talked to me because i would fly home like every couple months for a couple other things and uh he asked me if i was interested in moving back to santa cruz to help with the brewery wow and at that time they didn't have a brewery so i was like no i'm not moving back to santa cruz for an idea <laughs> <laughs> we need concrete evidence yeah i was like if yeah. you have like a foundation and like you got like 
an actual space on Move Back. But right. before we were like walking around Santa Cruz and they were showing like possible retail locations, right. and I was like, maybe's, maybe's. What were you doing in Vegas? Uh, so I went. So when the guys, when we all left college, or when we left junior college, I went to UNLV. Oh, uh, I okay. was a hospitality major. Was that the uh, Rebels? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, so I lived out there, uh, and then uh, for seven years I worked on like the Strip. Uh, I was a corporate trainer. And then uh, I worked at, like, fine dining and mixology. You, you weren't doing cards? No. <laughs> you, made more, you made more money you made yeah. more money selling alcohol. Oh, uh, nice. So my nice. whole background was basically, like, alcohol and everything like that. Oh, okay. Uh, so you, you, you brought that background as well. Yeah. So, like, when they asked me about beer, I was like, oh, it's just, it's kind of the same world, just a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but then when I got back to California, I mean, craft beer was completely different than oh. Anything. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, speaking about that, like it seems like Santa Cruz has had a pretty vibrant like craft beer scene. Yeah. Um, can you kind of describe that craft beer scene of Santa Cruz to the listeners? Yeah, I mean, if you don't know Santa Cruz, then you should Google Sante Darius. Oh, of course, <laughs> of course. Uh, I mean, everybody looks up to Sante Darius. Sante Darius makes they don't make bad beer. No, like, all all their beer, every style is yep. amazing. They uh, so they they put Santa Cruz on the map. They're in Capitola, which is in Santa Cruz yeah. County. And then, I mean, we last time I heard, I think we're up to like 20 craft breweries in that small little, wow. small little county. It's yeah. not very big. No. But retail locations for each for the breweries is, is kind of like hand-picking. There's only like maybe like five or six, less than 10, I think. Really? Yeah. Uh, of size? Of like retail locations. So some of them brew, you know, they're like on a three-barrel system right, or something like right. that. And then they just they, they sell uh, direct to like distributor or something. What size did you guys open with? So we opened with that same one barrel from the grandma's spot. Oh, really? Uh, because PG&E wouldn't upgrade our electricity for like eight months. So the first like seven months, they wow. were doing double batches on the one barrel. And we would can't, we would keg everything just for that weekend. And right. then the weekend, it would drain everything. So if you came on Sunday like at 2 o'clock, the only thing we would have would be like a porter. Right. Be like, oh, you guys are a new brewery? Be like, yep. <laughs> this this porter right here, you can have that if That's you want. amazing. But yeah. I mean, you guys made it though. I, yeah, I mean, finally PG&E came out and, and and shifted. So when when they came out and did the power, what kind of system did you guys install for that first like that? So that was a, an American brewing equipment and that's a ten barrel system. Nice. So we started with a ten barrel system, uh, like four tens and I think like two twenties. Right, of course. And so that was uh, and that was what we were rolling out. And at that time, it seemed. Ginormous, Big, of course, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, you go from one barrel to ten barrel. I mean, it's a lot of liquid difference. What are you guys operating on now? Uh, that's that same Still, ten barrel. Yeah, yeah. it's. Uh, I I would say it's probably the most expensive ten barrel system in California. Uh, it's been modified, so we do uh, decoction on it. You do? Uh, it's a three vessel. Um, it's. Yeah, it's one of those things. Now we've invested so much in it, we can never get rid of it. Wow, that's amazing! You guys actually do decoction. So for our listeners, decoction mash is. A very long process of, of brewing that is typically from classic brewing styles when the malt wasn't as modified. If you re- just just Google it, so you can find out. We, we've talked we've it, talked about it, it right. before, but yes. uh, that was a Nick Pavlina yeah, yeah, deal, yeah, right? Pavlina, okay, that's a Pavlina. <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. I we, figured as much. I don't even think we had the budget to do it at the moment. He it's he, just like we he need, just like we pulled need. he pulled the trigger on like the welder and the right. pump and everything, and everybody was like, I don't think we have money for this. <laughs> But he did it, and I mean the lagers are coming out great. Right, uh, our our uh, our double decocted Hellas just won best in show at California. Wow, uh, California Beer Cup, right? Festival? I can't remember one one <laughs> one of the one of the ones. So, so what does the name Humble Sea mean? Yeah, well, I mean, what does it mean? Yeah, right. uh, so Pavlina. Uh, anybody who's ever met Pavlina, he's uh, you know like a pretty humble guy. He's uh, um. He, he's a great guy, and so he, he kind of just started looking at words that represented things in his life that he really liked, things that he looked up to, right? Um, things that were aspects of his life. And so humble. He's like a very humble person. right? And then uh, he loved doing anything outdoors, and we live right on the beach, so surfing was a really big time. And so humble. he said humble sea. Uh, there's also been talk about how the sea can humble you. Anybody, yes, absolutely. Anybody can go out there. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of where it, it came, came from. from. There's a lot of other stories, but I mean that's that's the, I, what we go. I with. mean, being in Santa Cruz, are you more surfers or skaters or a combination of both? You would it's, say? A, it's like a combination of both. Yeah, I grew up I grew up skating more than I grew up surfing, um, but it, it, it just it just depends. On it, the, do, out of the four, I mean, 
more more surfers or skaters? Well, I would say, like, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you reach a point in your age where you're like, yeah, dude, I don't <laughs> want to skate anymore. No <laughs> like, you know, I think I was yeah. like 23, 24 when yeah. I like ate shit on my board, and I was like, ah, I just, I don't I can't think do I want. This I was anymore. like, I just don't think I want to do this anymore. <laughs> Dislocated my shoulder. I was like, yeah, I could, I could do other stuff. That's awesome, man. That is awesome. So the humble values, kooky, humble, innovative, righteous, accepting. Can you kind of explain how those all kind of fit together? Yeah, so humble's kind of like how we take like our approach to stuff, uh, beer, um, you know, just like just all, all around how we do stuff. The 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 terminology like kook is something that we like play into because Santa Cruz is such a surfer town. Yeah, um, it's like world renowned known. Like people know about it for yes. surfing. So and yeah. kook kook is a terminology that people use for people who don't know how to surf. Right. Uh, but the only way you can learn how to surf is actually you don't know. So right. we kind of like put a flip on it and we're like, yeah, like we're just a bunch of kooks. Like we all suck at surfing. Yeah. <laughs> like we're not professionals. Everybody, everybody knows that. Like, and, and innovative, I would definitely say that speaks to like the beers that you guys brew and stuff like that as well. Yeah. I think that's like the approach that we try to go to it. Like we're trying to be innovative, but trying to be humble about it also. Like not, not get like too crazy, but, uh, yeah, I mean the brew, the brewing team definitely definitely pushes it. And righteous would also be another surfer term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> righteous. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely. definitely another another surfer term. I, I I can't remember the last time we used that term, but yeah, it's it's definitely yeah. it's probably on the website if I had to really think about it. And accepting, of course, is because of the crappier community and how we're very accepting towards anybody and everybody yeah yeah and that's just kind of like where we are in california like who who's around us you know the bay area is like full of different stuff so that's awesome man i mean (laughs) but it's definitely all tied into surfing which is great i mean we have crap surf here so unless a hurricane blows in (laughs) which it's always funny because the news always goes out to the beach and they're like and look at these people surfing right now (laughs) and these dudes like I mean, when you get like 10, 12 footers. Oh, yeah. Then, yeah. I mean, which never happens in Miami unless there's a hurricane. <laughs> right. So unless you go up to Daytona or some inlets, you know, yeah. it's the surf in Florida is not that great. <laughs> oh, you guys just come out to California? Yeah. Yeah. Brew Absolutely. I don't, surf? I don't know. The water out there is a little cold, especially it's, probably it's up by li- you guys. It's a little bit colder for sure than what you guys are used to. Oh, no. I mean, it's like 55 degrees. Nope. I've done it, dude. I, I <laughs> no, re- thank you. I remember growing up. And I would spend my summers and spring break visiting my uncle in uh, in Westchester, Marina del Rey. And he took me to Catalina one time. And it was like in the middle of August. And he's like, yeah, let's go swimming. Dude, I jumped in that water. It was like 60 degrees. I'm like, nope. I'm out, dude. I'm out. This is horrible. Like, it's, it's warmer if you get down to San Diego, but... Yeah. Everybody, it's still cold. Oh, yeah. Everybody's got wetsuits. Oh, Warmer. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it's like 58. Right. I, I, like, I go like, into the beach here it's when it's piss hot. Yeah, it's like, bad. it it's cannot be cold <laughs> at all. It is bathwater around here. So what beers would you say are the most popular today at Humble Sea, and how have consumers' tastes evolved since you guys opened six years ago? Oh, man. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, if you take – there's only one beer Humble Sea makes consistently, and that's Socks and Sandals. And that was a, a, a Pliny clone. It was like a classic, like West Coast. Uh, and then we, you know, adapted it um, to modern times. We started using Vermont yeast. We started making it, nice. you know, just a little bit more juicier. And now we use juice yeast uh, because we just, we can control it and we like it more. But uh, it's pretty classic. Centennial Chinook, uh, Simcoe, and then Citra in there to just give it like a new new citrus pop to it. And that's the most popular one. And that, that one really shows like how, you know, when... When we started and, you know, in that phase of craft beer, there was people were looking for that piney resin of citrus, and then it moved over to yeah. now they just want, like, the softest, pillowy thing that they can, like, Super drink. haze. Yeah. Super haze. <laughs> but it sucks and sandals is that a medium because it's still got all those old school hops. So, you know, whether you're just getting into it or you really like craft beer, like, it's still, you're like, yeah, this is a great beer. Like, it's got best of both worlds. And you guys also brew a, a gamut of other things, Imperial Stouts. Oh, yeah. That's the only thing we brew consistently. Everything else is just winging it, like, yeah. all the time. We'd, like, uh, you know, smoothie beers, uh, smoothie seltzers. We tried those. Pastry stouts, barrel-aged stouts, lagers, yeah. um, mixed firm. So you guys run the gamut, a little bit of everything. I mean, because, I, I, like, as we also see here, that people's tastes have changed. But I, I think I'm also kind of starting to see 
kind of a reversion back to all the way back to where the circle would begin and kind of back to loggers and, oh, yeah. and other things? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's just kind of like, like I tell people all the time, it's like spicy food. Like you'll, you'll keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And then all of a sudden you'll reach a point where like it's so spicy you can't taste anything. And then somebody hands you just like, like a papaya salad and you're right. like, holy shit, this is like amazing. Right, right. <laughs> it's right. like no, no spicy or anything like that. So that's, I think people are, are like hops are, you know, what we were like eight, eight years ago, we were doing like triple digit IBUs. Right, exactly. And so now, now people are like, wow, this, this Pilsner is like delightful. Exactly. <laughs> I think we might work back to the days of, of clear, somewhat bitter IPAs. Yeah. But, but we'll see for sure. You're listening to the Beer Hour, and we're speaking to Nick Sanchez of Humble Sea. So we are on the business channel, of course, and you are the head of sales. So now's your chance to uh, brag a little bit about what you do. How much has Humble Sea grown, and what is like your current distribution model? Yeah, so uh, Humble Sea's never not been growing. It's oh, of course. probably like uh, the one thing we consistently do, uh, I think... Year one, uh, like I said, that eight months we kicked yeah. on the ten barrel, and then right after that, I mean, we pretty much ordered uh, another round of twenty barrel, twenty barrel fermenters and thirty barrels, and then right after that, we ordered another round of forty barrel fermenters with twenty barrel horizontal log- lagering tanks, and then right after that, uh, that puts us in two thousand nineteen ordering for two thousand twenty. Uh, we got the Caney line uh, depalletizer. Uh, bright tanks centrifuge wow. and another 20 horizontal um so it's kind of like it's just a normal thing for us yeah you know it's like teenage years like you're just like yeah just constantly growing keep out growing. of the shirt keep these growing. vans never fit me right <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah we've, we've been growing but like at that time it, it's been great the the rate that you know the consumers and stuff like that has been growing so our tap room constantly just every summer does Cranks. more Price. Just does more, yeah. um, and so wholesale's kind of been at. Um, it's been at a point where we can we can turn it on and, and turn it off. Uh, right. The pandemic, we had to turn it on, right? Uh, which was which was great. I mean, the accounts that we that we deal with are the best accounts in California. So uh, it was it was good good timing, I guess. I, I wouldn't say it's good timing. No, nothing was good timing in the pandemic. No. no. Um, how many barrels did you guys? Uh, all right. Well, we won't account for the one barrel system. Yeah. Uh, once for, you got the 10. For the first, <laughs> like that first fiscal year of having that 10 barrel, how many barrels did you guys put out that year versus what you guys are doing now? I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, less than 1,000, and now we're doing more than 5,000. Really? You're doing, that's awesome, man. That is yeah. great growth. Uh, that is great growth for sure. Do you guys only distro in Cali? Uh, no, no, we'll dabble. Like if I can get stuff to Florida legally, yeah, I'll yeah. send stuff to Florida. <laughs> uh, yeah. So now we'll do, um, yeah, like, uh, we'll send stuff out to Arizona every once in a while. Like, uh, Aslan had their anniversary. So we sent up, right. you know, some beer out to Virginia. Um, we'll do stuff for New York, uh, beer week this right. year. Uh, so I'll go out to New York. That's awesome. So, yeah, I mean, we're not like, we, we can send beer to other things, but right. like, we at the time still don't have enough beer for just the accounts we have in California. Right. That's the hard thing. Always trying to cover home base as much as possible. Yeah. So you guys use the word community a lot, like on, on your website and in media. How has Humble Sea fostered a sense of community among like-minded people in Santa Cruz and beyond, do you think? I think it's really just kind of like hanging out with people that think like you. I mean, the Bay Area is, there's a lot of breweries in the Bay Area. And um, there are a lot of amazing breweries. And then you meet people within those breweries that are also just, like, just amazing people. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you also come to Miami and hang out with cool people, too. Yeah. I mean, we have to, <laughs> I have to fly all the way out to Miami just to hang out with cool people. <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the brewing industry. There's so many people, but, like, you get to meet people all the time. Like, yeah. like this trip already, I've already met uh, a couple new people that I was just like, this is amazing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's so many great people within the community, and that's probably one of the best things about the beer community is just how open it can be and inviting. I mean, it's just all the people that we've met, I mean, including you guys, and now that we have a great relationship with you guys, and you guys live on the West Coast, but we're still, you know, good friends, and it's all because of the beer community. Yeah. So I think it's it's a great thing for sure. So Humble Sea has been involved with 
save our shores, save the waves, which are ocean-oriented nonprofits. It seems like from the beginning, you guys have been focused on as much on making the world a better place as brewing great craft beer. What do you see as Humble Sea's role in supporting these causes? Yeah, I like. I think for a lot of breweries, you know, uh, I think people have a misconception of how big breweries are. Right. So the the constant like the constant oh, you know, can you donate twenty thousand dollars to this nonprofit? Um, you know, is a biz uh, is a big ask. You know, yeah. like the the flip side of that would be asking like every small bakery to do that. But I think uh, craft beer itself has such a big platform on reaching people of different areas ideas that uh a lot of breweries the best thing they can do is literally just get that nonprofit's name out and actually like put it on their platform because it only takes it only takes one person from a tech company who drinks at your bar to be like oh you guys like this nonprofit? like i never heard of it Two seconds, they're on their phone. They're reading about the nonprofit, and all of a sudden, they're like, "Cool! Like my tech company is gonna cut like a six-figure check for you guys." That's dope, man. And so that's that's the way like I, I like to look at it. I think that's the way like Humble C likes to look at it. It's like we do a lot better if we can get the nonprofit's name to as many people as we can reach, and then you know we we'll, we'll still like a cut a check, do like a collab beer, like cut the profits for them and everything. But we always tell the nonprofits like it's a hundred times better for you if we just spread your name than it is to us to just say uh we are cutting a check for so and so on tuesday no yeah i completely understand that can you also tell our listeners about the inclusion beer project what is it and what is your involvement in that yeah so the inclusion beer project uh was like an idea i had uh it's probably around like three or four years ago essentially it was it was back in the day you remember when you would go and, like, you would go to, like, stores and, uh, like, restaurants or anything like that, and they would have, like, an upside-down rainbow triangle on, right. their, on their door. And that would just be, like, yeah, it's, like, a safe space. Like, all all's welcome. Like, come in. Like, we have no judgment here. Um, I was thinking about that, and I was just like, yeah, what would that be, like, in today's form? And then what would that be in, like, you know, craft beer form? And craft beer would be most craft beer bars' front door is their Instagram page. And then, you know, the sticker would be the label on the can. Of course. So I was like, okay, cool. So why don't we just ask all our friends, like, hey, like, we're going to come up with a name. You brew the beer. And it announces to everybody on your platform that, like, you're an open space. Like, anybody's, anybody can come and have a lager. Anybody can have – nobody's going to judge you for having a seltzer. Right. right. Like, it's, it's an open <laughs> space. Like, And, uh, you know, I, I pitched the idea to, like, a couple people, like, three or four years ago. And then uh, we sat down at Humble Sea as a leadership group. And we talked about it, and we we're like, "Yeah, this, this seems like a cool idea." At the time, we didn't have like the foundation to do it, or 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 the time. Like, you know, we're in growth stage the whole time. Then, um, in after George Floyd, uh, the San Francisco Brewers Guild announced that they're going to start a DEI committee, and then uh, Devon, who is the master brewer for Drake's, announced okay. that she was going to be the head of the chair. Oh wow! And uh, I instantly saw that email, and I emailed her, and I was like, "Yeah, like I'm in." Okay. Like, Devon's amazing. So I was like, Wh- whatever you need, whatever aspect or you see me working, like I'd love to be part of this. And a lot of people reached out. I think there's like 15 or 20 of us on the uh, committee. There's subcommittees. So I'm in the events subcommittee. There's community. There's endowment. There's, there's the whole different different ones. And then so after like the fifth or sixth meeting, I kind of like thought, I was like, well, this this committee is like all like-minded people. Like this might be the place to pitch it. So I pitched it, and uh, we like kind of like tweaked it, and yeah. So we started the Inclusion Beer Project. What we're doing is basically asking any brewery that participates in it is it just starting a DEI group within their company. We're just saying you need to create a safe space for your employees to open up about things that they'd like to talk about, um, your hiring practices, the the way that your company goes about doing anything, whether it's internally, externally. Um, and just making it more of an inclusive space. Um, and and that's kind of it. Uh, lately, people have been asking me, what's the tracking method on it? And it's a great question. It's really hard to track a DE&I. One, uh, one brewery's sort of culture could be completely different than every other brewery's culture. And the pace that you move in a DE&I group Tim. cannot be a negative or a positive thing. It's just, it, it is what it is. If right. you're slowly doing it, that's great. Slow progress is still progress. 
Um, it's not going to be fixed in six months. It's not going to no. be fixed in a year. No. So that's something that we're pushing for. Uh, the Brewers Guild, we're going to push it really hard for San Francisco Beer Week. Nice. Um, there's, I'd say, we've just been slowly just asking breweries to open in, uh, to the discussion. And there's been some, some signups, like some, some people that I reached out to or said, yeah, like, like we're really already interested in that. Um, it comes with like resources, how to start a DEI group, like, like guides. Um, and then we're going to add basically also, if you want to go a step further, like here's a list of like consultants, like companies that'll help you start to do that. Okay. If you want a third party, like HR consultant, here's a list of people also. It's all relative though, kind of like to where you are, um, and just how deep you want to get into it. That's awesome, man. So it's definitely on the right track and, and moving in an upward scale that you would say. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think, uh, more safe spaces to talk about stuff. I mean, hard conversations need to happen. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if not, I don't think we will have any kind of progress. Yeah, exactly. At all. So that's awesome. So what would you say is next in 2022 for Humble C? Oof, a lot of traveling. Yes. Like a shitload of traveling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, more beer. Yeah. Uh, we, so we, have, we opened up a second venue in 2021, uh, just, a, just a restaurant uh, with a patio. Uh, we have the keys to a third restaurant with a patio up in up in the valley in wow. the Felton of Santa Cruz County. Nice. Um, that has a full liquor license. That's going to be opening up in January, February. And then we're looking, hopefully, to open up two more retail locations in 2022. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Major plans. Major moves, always, baby. Always. Major moves. Yeah, you kind of get used to just having, like, short breath and anxiety. Your body just adapts <laughs> to it. <laughs> That's horrible. Right. We've had we've I had know. like two years of our bodies just pumping cortisol into because I of know. the stress and the anxiety that we're just like, oh, well, we're used to this now. Well, thank you, brother, thank very you. much for coming on. The we got to talk about it's this collab awesome. now. Yeah, yeah. Thank Absolutely. you for having me. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. It's champagne season. According to the International Business Times, 25% of all bottles of champagne sold in the U.S. are sold between Christmas and New Year's Day. Our next guest has one of the best jobs in the world. As the national ambassador for the historic champagne house Perrier Jouet and G.H. Mum, she travels the U.S. educating both consumers and trade professionals about the most celebrated of wines, champagne. Along the way, she has become known as one of the fresh young faces of the industry as evidenced by her impressive social media following and the success of her webinar series, Just Add Champagne. She's here to help our audience of craft beer drinkers, like you, up your bubbles game this holiday season. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Elise Cordell. How are you? Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, I'm doing so well. How are you? <laughs> doing well. Doing uh, Probably going to be doing a lot better here very shortly, <laughs> now that we actually have a bottle of your... Uh, rosé in-house. So to kind of get us in the mood here, Marie and I are going to sample one of your champagnes. We're drinking a GH Mum Grand Cordon Rosé. Can you tell us a little bit about this uh, champagne? Oh, of course. So GH Mum has history going all the way back to 1827, and their signature grape is Pinot Noir. So it actually makes sense that they would do a rosé since most rosés from the region are either made via assemblage, um, which is when you actually blend in some still red wine before the second fermentation or via senye, which is done with macerations. You're actually taking the color from the skins itself. So the great thing about rosé champagne is that it has all of these great kind of savory components for the wine itself. So you get more complexity and depth of flavor. And it takes a long time actually to make this wine come to fruition. So the wine that you're having right now um, the original iteration comes from the 1950s, which is really cool. And so over time, it's developed into this really beautiful wine. And it's something that is actually an extra dry. So we have 60% Pinot Noir in this wine. And then, of course, a little bit of Chardonnay and Pinot Meunier, because, of course, just like hops, I was thinking about this earlier, each specific type of hop or each specific type of like grain or malt has a different characteristic. And so that's why you pull those out to achieve your flavor components. It's the same thing with grapes. Wow. So Pinot Noir is going to add like that big structure, lots of big red fruit. Chardonnay adds a bit of that minerality, maybe some like kind of white flower components, maybe some citrus fruit. 
And then Meunier comes in with like those yellow tree fruits um, and has adds some nice roundness. So all three of those coming together, and it's only at about six grams per liter in terms of the dosage. So you're going to get that dryness, but it's going to be balanced out because of that still red wine that was blended in. But you can even just see in the color, like it's that very rich kind of salmon-y color. It pops right out of that bottle. And it's really just a fun wine to drink because it's so versatile then when it comes to food. And I love the fact that you're drinking it out of a tulip-shaped glass because I think that you can actually get more of the aromatic components out. <laughs> even, But even the, the, the legs of the yeah. wine the 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 viscosity it's it's beautiful it's coating the glass very very nicely no yeah this is great oh yeah i do get a lot of uh i'm actually I mean, it'll sneak up on you it's about 12 percent alcohol no. so. yeah that's why we started small dose small doses <laughs> i'm actually getting a lot of uh ripe ripe berries and fruit and some citrus notes yes, on the back end um, so before we get into a little champagne 101 i kind of wanted to ask a little about your professional career journey. How, how did you get into the champagne business? Oh, of course. And I think like many people within our industry, it might not be something that you knew that you wanted to do when you were younger, especially if you didn't come from a family that already had roots within this industry. So my entire professional career has kind of been led by serendipity, you know, oh. about like where you're living, who you're meeting, what you get into And, you know, my champagne part of my career came back in 2016. So I had previously been working for another supplier and I had, you know, all of South Florida as part of my route. And so one of my accounts was Cafe Balud up in Palm Beach. And the buyer there at the time, her name was Maria Kovacheva. She's a master sommelier here in the United States. And she then took a job with Pernod Ricard USA, which is who I work for now. And I saw her um, at, I believe it was Cafe Chardonnay. And she said, at least there's a job opening and I want you to apply. And if someone like that, who's, you know, she's been a mentor to me for a long time now, if she says you should do it, you should definitely do it. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and it was just a great next progression, you know, cause I'd worked in wine retail. I'd worked in nonprofits. Um, I had done restaurants you know, in Tampa, especially, and then distribution and, and becoming a supplier. So this was kind of the next step for me to be able to really focus on one category and feel as though I could, you know, learn as much as I possibly could absorb <laughs> about this one really, really beautiful type of wine that's enjoyed, you know, worldwide in more than like 190 countries. So there's always something more to be able to learn. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So hopefully Maria doesn't get me, uh, get too mad for me butchering. So you, you do work for Pernod Ricard, which is a global wine and spirits yes. group with 240 premium brands available in over 160 countries. Perrier Jouet and GH Mum are mm-hmm. the two champagne houses inside of Pernod Ricard's portfolio. GH Mum has been in business since 1827. Wow. And the number one champagne in France, Perrier Jouet has been making smaller volumes of elegant floral champagne since 1811. Can you explain in simple terms how champagne, I mean, I love the process how champagne is made. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's an amazing process. Well, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are very familiar with just the, even the idea of fermentation and how that happens, but in champagne specifically to make a sparkling wine of this caliber and what we call, you know, method traditionnel or, or what used to be called method champenoise, they, it takes about 13 steps. It's, you know, quite labor intensive and it's also playing on game. You know, it's not like making other types of wine, where within, you know, the course of a year, or even if we're talking about Prosecco in the course of 90 days, you can have something ready to ship. You know, we're talking more like years here. So it all starts, of course, in the vineyards. And, you know, you because you can make a bad wine from great grapes, but you can't make a great wine from bad grapes. So you really have to focus on what you're doing there. And so GH Mom and Perry Jouet are so focused on sustainability uh, because we know that in the future, we're going to want to really maintain the health of those vineyards because that's how we're going to continue to get really high quality fruit. And we're doing the same thing, sharing those ideas with all of our grower partners as well, because of course there's only 360 houses in Champagne as we know them, but there's 16,000 growers. So wow. like this is a very collaborative effort that's going on. And so one of the biggest costs in Champagne in general is labor. And because it takes about 120,000 people to actually make harvest 
happen because it has to be done by hand. That's mandated. And so all of these people coming in, it usually starts like towards like mid to late August. Of course, every different village will be a little bit different depending on where they are within their ripeness process and when they decide to pick. But that's really when the whole thing kind of kicks off. And so you want to try to get those grapes pressed as quickly as possible because we don't want to accidentally make wine in the bucket. And so you take them to your pressing stations and you go through that first press and you want to take the what's called the cuvee. So that's going to be the first press, the clear juice. You can do it mechanically um, or they also have basket presses as well. We use basket presses at our press houses and it just slowly, 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 you know, drains that juice because we don't want to break the skins. And we don't want to break the seeds because that's going to impart way more tannin than what we want for these wines. They're already super high in acid. So if you did super high acid and, and a lot of tannin, then I'll yeah. drinking Barolo. Yeah. Like <laughs> Not quite the same thing that you're trying to achieve. So after that pressing, then we can go into kind of that we do the first fermentation and malolactic fermentation. Then not everyone goes through mallow. And so for those of you who may not know what malolactic fermentation is, it's when we convert malic acid. So think like Granny Smith apples yes. into lactic acid. Yep. So more like butter and cream. And we kind of need that, especially certain houses that focus on Chardonnay, for example, which is what Paris Wet does. You want to have like a little bit softer of a palate so you don't feel like you're stripping the enamel off of your teeth when you drink the wine. Right. And <laughs> yeah, that, so ma- once- that malic would definitely do that. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And it's beautiful and it's delicious, but it's all about balance, right? Yes. We have to find yes. the balance within yes. the whole system. So after we go through the first fermentation and then um, malolactic fermentation, the wine is at about like 8% in terms of ABV at this point. So that's when we start to really involve the cellar master and that's where their expertise comes in. And so each one of these plots has been vinified separately. So we go through and we taste each one to really kind of look at that idea of terroir, that sense of place. What do these wines really represent? Because the cellar master is an artist, right? And each one of these plots is a color in their palette. So how are they going to make one cohesive picture and work of art based on the cuvee that they're trying to produce? And so after that tasting process, they'll actually blend those things together in order then to create the finished wine. And then we have the liqueur de tirage. So that's when the second fermentation starts. So we add a little bit more yeast, a little bit of sugar into that blended wine and put a crown cap on it, much like you do for beer. And then that way the CO2 that is then generated in addition to the alcohol can't blow off into the atmosphere. It's actually absorbed into the wine. And so then that's why champagne has such a creamy kind of perlage. Like those bubbles are super soft and like, and the smaller they are, like the more you can actually taste the complexity of the wine versus other products that maybe have bigger carbonation and therefore you kind of miss it, like as you taste it through. And then, so, and then, is often the same. And then after this step, is, it, is that where you invert the bottles and freeze the yeast in the neck and pull that plug? Yes. So right before, so when we, we have to go through the aging process before disgorgement, and I'm glad that you mentioned it because it's actually my favorite part of the full process. <laughs> so this is kind of when the time factor comes in, and that's the one of the second biggest kind of, pro, you know, in terms of investment into right. the wines themselves, because the minimum amount of time in champagne that you can age in non-vintage cuvee is 15 months plus another three for um, after cork and labeling. And so, but our brands, we do more like two and a half to three years for your your vintage. So like, you know, something that we harvested today, you know, this year, you're not even going to see until 2024. So it's really, again, playing the long game there. But when it's their time, when they have achieved, you know, that extra time on the lease, really thinking about that texture, that complexity, that's when slowly we go through the riddling process and we have a little cap in the bottom called a bedule because you want to capture all of that yeast particle because otherwise you're going to have cloudy champagne and that's gross. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the point. And so we have to send it through that freezing solution like you mentioned because of course the solid will freeze but the liquid itself will not because of that ABV. And so you essentially get like a little ice cube in the bottom of your bottle since now the neck is fully inverted. You open up the cap, the pressure inside the bottle, which pushes is it about, out. pushes it out. Then you've got a clear, beautiful wine. Then we can cork it, put on that cage. That's amazing. And then really send it out to you afterwards. It's, you amazing. know, like I said, labor intensive, but yes. it's totally 
Yeah, actually, I got into reading more about the process when there was actually a brewery in Alaska called Midnight Sun, and they actually used to do these very select beers. I mean, this obviously is a while ago, but they actually tried to make a champagne-styled beer by running the actual full gamut of process of freezing the leaves and everything else in the neck, and I, I really dove into that because I found it very interesting, but it's, it's awesome to actually hear the whole process from kind of like start to finish. Can you also explain to us from your point of view, what the difference is between Champagne, Prosecco, Cava, and California sparkling wine? Totally. So even just within category, so Champagne, Cava, American sparkling, those are all made the same way. Prosecco is made in a totally different process called the Charmat method. And it's essentially just carbonated and fermented under pressure and then bottled to order. So you can make it as quickly as 60 days. Um, So it's, you know, anything, whatever you see on the shelf is probably incredibly fresh because they can just kind of fill orders as they go. When versus Kava, for example, most of those wines are going to be aged for 18 months. Same thing with American Sparkling at the very least. Now, it also then comes down to grapes, right, and the idea of what you're actually making the wine from. Now, American Sparkling has a lot of very similar grapes that we use to Champagne. So Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Meunier, sometimes some Pinot Gris, for example. Cava, though, uses three di- – they use uh, Macabeo, Pariata, and Girello. So totally different in terms of the actual grape matter that you're utilizing. And then the same thing for like French Accorda, for example, that's also made in like a traditional method of sparkling, but with totally different grapes. And then Prosecco is made with Glera. Um, So that is the actual grape itself in Prosecco. Wow, that's interesting. So, I mean, and all those grape varieties are actually going to lend their own terroir or their own flavor profiles to it. So there's definitely a, exactly. a, a, a giant gap between all of them. Obviously, it all, all depends on what you're really looking for as far as flavors go, I guess. You're listening to The Beer Hour, and we're speaking to Elise Cordell of Pernod Ricard. This next question I've actually run in reverse when it came from wine, champagne to beer. What would be <laughs> your best advice for beer drinkers who are new to champagne space? What's the easiest way for them to figure out what they would like? champagne so that's a great question and i'm really glad that you asked so i would think about the weight of the beer that you normally like are you someone that really enjoys something like a pilsner or like a kolsch which is like super refreshing really easy drinking so you're gonna want you know a champagne that is maybe more in like a brute but maybe like on the higher end of the brute scale kind of style and maybe something that focuses a lot on maybe Pinot Meunier um, and Chardonnay, because those are going to be a much brighter, maybe very lifted. You're, you might like Blanc de Blanc, for example. Oh. If you like something that is more of like an IPA style, so like very much in your face, you know, like has a lot of really cool hops, has a little bit of that bitterness to it, then you might want something that is more of like a, might have gone through some skin contact or is very Pinot Noir based because Pinot Noir has much more venosity to it than the other grapes would. And so you'll be able to taste those layers of flavor. Um, for your guys that really love like the imperial kind of, you know, like your imperial stouts or something like that. Yeah. Like when it comes to champagne, like you might want to go maybe towards something that's in almost not a dessert style, but something that has a little bit more sweetness to it just because it's going to have that same kind of mouthfeel and that richness and viscosity. That's my initial. No, I know. I would, I would probably, I probably would agree. I would probably agree. I mean, yeah, because definitely when you obviously, as you talk, a weight or finishing gravities on beer deals with the thickness or viscosity of the beer in the final glass. I mean, uh, for the stout guys, you would need something very thick and probably syrupy, heavy, rich, you know, more dessert-like overall, I believe. Um, Since we are, you know, kind of heading towards the holidays, Christmas, New Year's, what about bringing bottles to parties or serving champagne to guests? What are, what are you know, some bottle recommendations that champagne drinkers and non-champagne drinkers alike would enjoy? Oh, absolutely. And this is kind of the best time of year to champagne as a gift to anyone because no one is ever going to say like, oh, you brought me champagne. Like there's always something that they can do with it, like whether they're going to drink it themselves, they can turn it into cocktails or into a punch for a party 
or, you know, worst case scenario, they take it to a white elephant party because maybe it's not something that they drink. So regardless, (laughs) someone is going to be made very, very happy by that choice. And I think that there are a lot of great options out there right now, not only from my portfolio, but of course, just, you know, across the full category of champagne. You know, when you're drinking the Grand Cordon Rosé right now, but I think that the GH Mom Grand Cordon Brut is an excellent wine to give people that are new to the category because it's a little bit rounder. It has really nice kind of hints of like soft red fruits, like strawberries, for example. And then you also get like a little bit of like those vanilla kind of notes on the end. But it's so easy drinking that you can have more than one glass and then not feel like you're getting that drying sensation on your palate and then down your throat, which is when I was working in retail, that was the feedback I got a lot was I need something that doesn't have a bite to it. And I think that that wine definitely satisfies that. Plus it's a versatile in terms of how you want to drink it. You know, we've done really cool things with a lot of our spirits brands in terms of programming, creating champagne focused cocktails with things like Jameson black barrel or with monkey 47 Or, you know, even with something, of course, you can easily do like a vodka, you know, kind of play there. So it's like absolute. So it's easy to kind of find ways to make it even like a multi-layered gift. You can almost put together your own little gift set with a recipe card. And then all of a sudden you've kind of given someone a plug and play way to like spend their Friday night. (laughs) Uh, These are all great gift ideas, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Well, a lot of them even come with glasses within the packaging, right? This is, this is the time of gift sets. So you can, you won't get the opportunity to say like, Hey, like now you can add like these things to your collection. When I go and do trade shows, people tell me all the time, like, Oh, I have a whole set of your Jouette, you know, because of course around this time of year, you can buy a bottle of Bella Pock and it comes with two of our hand painted flutes to it. Okay. But there's definitely like a memory there. It's something that, you know, evokes a lot of like really nice emotion and people just really enjoy receiving that. Plus, if it's a vintage champagne, it's something that they could lay down for a while. Right. Um, or, for example, birth years are excellent. So like if you right now, the 2013s are coming out. But if that is a significant year for you in terms of your life, like whether it's a graduation, a wedding, a birth, whatever it is that becomes a really beautiful gift to give someone showing that you care about those milestones that they've gone through during the course of their life. So everybody needs to go out and buy the uh, Perrier Jouette's uh, gift set then. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I I mean, it's, I mean, I've actually seen the bottles and, and the the flutes. It's a beautiful gift. Oh yeah, absolutely. So man does not live by champagne alone. Tell us about your craft beer journey. You, You travel the country are there any craft beer breweries that you sneak off to after your fancy champagne events? So I love that you're asking this because especially after working in restaurants and stuff, I mean, all of our shift drinks were usually beer after work yes. or we would go to the dive bar across the street <laughs> from the restaurant and definitely do that. I'm very lucky being from Northeast Ohio. We do have some very cool breweries up there. I actually saw that you interviewed Mark Hunger from Great Lakes Brewing yes, Company we did. on yes. the previous episode. And I love that because we used to freak out every year when Christmas sale would come out, like you immediately go, you pick it up, like you can't let it. And it was just, that was a very serious marker for us across the holidays. And then of course they have their Dortmunder gold, which has won a lot of awards and is just, it's great for drinking. And then we would always use it for all of our cooking recipes. So if we were making like venison chili or something like that, we would use the Dortmunder gold for that. So Great Lakes Brewing is probably like the first, craft brewery that I knew about growing up in Northeast Ohio. But then as I've moved around and as I've traveled, there are so many amazing places to go. So many. And I'm still, I mean, my husband just went on a trip to Portland, Maine, and they hit up every single one that they could hit like over the course of those three or four days. So now I have to go and do that trip with him. But another one that I really love, of course, because I lived in Tampa, Florida, is Cigar City. You know, they're doing some great things when it comes to like different iterations of kind of pushing the needle um, yes. and then fourth is like seven sun being there too. Like having like those really neat kind of, you know, playing with Britannomyces, playing with like some of these really cool flavors outside of the box. That was always awesome. And then my parents live in Charleston, South Carolina. So you've got West brewing there. Yes. And I think that those are the, those are really fun beers that you can lay down. Like you can actually age those. Yes, <laughs> like, absolutely. 
absolutely cool. But I have to say, we did spend a lot of time at Jay Wakefield uh, when we, because I used to live in Miami. And so if we were hanging out in Wynwood, we would always stop there because, of course, you had, I mean, El Jefe is delicious. But then you always had, like, so many great beers that have cool influence. I mean, I can even just see it behind you, like, all that Star Wars like, influence that you <laughs> yes. guys have. All of your yes. naming characteristics are so fun. Like, because at the end of the day, like, what we do, yeah, like, we're creating a fun product and all of that. But, you know, there's a part of our soul in that. So, like, to see the personalities of the brewers come out in their beers is so much fun. Yes, absolutely. And uh, good shout out to Cigar City. I mean, that's where I got my start at before this whole thing. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure that you have done a toast or two in your day. What advice do you have for our listeners when they're asked to give a toast this holiday season? Keep it short and sweet. You know, like it's, it's not necessarily about the volume of words. It's about the quality of the words that you're using. So think about the people that you're with. And think about what's important to them and how, you know, they've really touched your life. And then just essentially say, because we've all been through a lot, especially over the last kind of 18 to 24 months, and just make it about wishes for the future and how, you know, we're so thankful that we get to spend this time together now. And then what wishes for, you know, what's coming in 2022, et cetera. But yeah, it's, it's all about being poignant (laughs) and if you want to throw in like little jokes here and there that's always good but what we normally say when we're raising a toast at the events that i'm doing and all that is a very just classic french um, saying which is a vulture santé which means to your health and that's honestly at the end of the day that's enough that we can hope for (laughs) so not to put you on the spot but we are going to put your advice to the test now since you are our last guest of the year on the beer hour we're going to give you the honor of making a New Year's toast to end the show. I just want all the listeners to know that I was not prepared for this, and I am very much put on the spot right now, but I'm totally <laughs> okay with it. And so I wish that I had a glass that I could raise with you right now as I sit in my hotel room watching you enjoy this champagne. But it has been such a privilege and a pleasure to be able to be a part of this amazing community and to see the growth that we've all gone through together, not just within this very trying period, but within our whole lives as you, because we have so many similar experiences and all I can hope for is that we remain just as close in the future and we continue to support each other in all of our endeavors to come. Cheers. A votre santé. You you actually knocked that out of the park. So thank you very much. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. And thank you for... It was a uh, pleasure. Such a great product. And uh, we hope that you have a great Christmas and a happy new year. Thank you so much. And I will see you soon in Miami. Absolutely. Thank you very much. We look forward to it. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. And that's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Nick Sanchez and Elise Cordell, my co-host, Maria Cabre, and my producer, Rocco Riggio. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturdays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 1 p.m. or anytime on Sirius XM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, people. And remember, the thirst is real. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio.